invite you to turn in your Bibles along with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. And we will read the first 18 verses of Romans 1. And then we'll turn over a few pages to Philippians chapter 3. And then we will open our Forms and Prayers books to Lord's Day 23. And our sermon title is Not the Labors of My Hands. As this past week we celebrated Reformation Day, we spend a few moments today reflecting on this passage of Scripture which opened the eyes of Martin Luther to the doctrines of grace as represented in the Scriptures and also we'll be looking at the experience of the Apostle Paul as he confronted grace and what it truly meant. And so first of all, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often have intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And let's now turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. We'll read the first 16 verses. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. For one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's now turn to Lord's Day 23. You can find this in the back of your Psalter hymnal or in the Forms and Prayers book. Verse day 23 in the Forms and Prayers volume is on page 224. And the first question of Lord's Day 23, number 59, asks, but how does it help you now that you believe all this? I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. To note, the all this refers to the exposition of the Apostles' Creed, which began in Lord's Day 9 and concluded at Lord's Day 22. So what, how does it help you now that you believe all this? The teaching of Scripture contained in the Articles of the Apostles' Creed. Number 60, how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus. 
even though this gift with a bleeding heart. Number 61, why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not we do believe. Your congregation loved by our Lord and by our Savior, Jesus Christ. This past Tuesday, we celebrated Reformation Day. 500 years ago, the German monk, German friar, marched up to the castle doors in Wittenberg, Germany, and on those doors nailed his 95 theses, his list of 95 protestations against the various teachings of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Little did Martin Luther know at that time that that act of nailing his theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, would change the course of history and would unleash the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in which the Lord was pleased to use men like Luther and others, like John Knox and John Calvin, to cause the church to rediscover the doctrines of grace as they are taught in Scripture. And as we think about the... Protestant Reformation. We celebrate it. This is our own particular heritage, and that should lead us to thanksgiving and humility. And simply, what the Reformation was, was a desire to reform, hence Reformation, reform the church back to the Bible. So boys and girls, as Christmas will be coming soon. Perhaps your mother will buy a number of chocolate bars, chocolate in bulk, and then will melt that chocolate and put it into molds, put the melted chocolate into the mold. And so the chocolate then is reformed according to the mold. And that's kind of the picture of what the Reformation and being a Reformed church is. It's simply to remold, reform the church back to the Bible. And tragically and sadly, during the uh, dark ages of the medieval church, the church had uh, grown, uh, grown so accustomed to various traditions and extra-biblical teaching and um, extra-biblical ways of doing church and meeting God and understanding who God was. And, and so that 
led the church into a, a certain dark, very dark time in which the people, the common folk, simply did not really get taught the gospel itself and the grace that's in the gospel. And so the Lord used men like Luther for the reforming, getting back to the Bible. And we are so thankful that this is our own heritage legacy. And this is something to celebrate because it has to do with the gospel itself. What Jesus Christ has done for his people in his perfect life, his atoning death, and his miraculous resurrection, and how what he has done for us, how it gets applied to us, how it saves us from our sins. And we rejoice in the Reformation, the doctrines of grace, because it points to the fact that our salvation is, is all of God. It's not of works, lest any of us should boast. It's all of God because of his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his wisdom, his power in saving the unsavable type like you and I. And so the doctrine of justification, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, we feel good about the Reformation. This is our own heritage, history, but... Understand the doctrine doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone does not make us feel good in this sense of what it really says about us. Because what it says about us is that we, you and I, are not so lovely and so lovable and so likely to be loved that God would put his saving grace upon us. It's wounding to our pride because deep in our hearts, we want to think that there must be something good in us or something positive that we must do to make ourselves better with God. Like, I know I'm not perfect, but you should see the girl down the street or some of those people in the news. Man, they're, they got pretty bad hearts. They, got, they do some pretty bad things. I'm not as bad compared to those people, but brothers and sisters, when we really understand our hearts and what our sin has done, and that we've committed cosmic treason against the king, that we've done everything possible to make it impossible for, we've done everything possible to make it impossible for God to save us, we are thankful for the fact that God has done the possible to save sinners like you and me, not based upon our worthiness, but rather based upon Christ's worthiness. And so this afternoon as we examine Romans chapter 1 in this verse that the Lord, the Spirit used in the life of Martin Luther, uh, we will examine it this somewhat uh, via narrative story. The First of all, the context, the story of Martin Luther, and then Sorry, secondly, the story of Martin Luther, but firstly, we'll look at the context of the Apostle Paul. And so our theme is that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us by faith alone. The context of Paul, and then secondly, the context of Martin Luther. First of all, the Apostle Paul and his context. And I've mentioned the word righteousness 
couple times already, and this is a word that we should define because we'll use it more. And boys and girls, what, what word do you hear in the word righteousness? What's the short word? Well, the word right. And righteousness essentially means to be right. And the opposite of being right is what? Well, to be wrong. And uh, this is why we get in discussions, arguments. We believe we are right. The other person is wrong. I'm right. Now, you can be wrong about a lot of things. But there's one thing you don't want to be wrong about. And that's how you stand before God. Because as we're speaking about righteousness this afternoon, this refers to the standard of God's justice, of his right justice. And this is what you and I need to measure up to, ultimately, if we are going to go to heaven and not go to hell. And so this is something you can't afford to be wrong on. You must be right on the gospel itself. Now, this is a struggle for us because our hearts are naturally bent toward self-justification. And the Apostle Paul, in his own spiritual experience and journey, saw this in his own heart. Remember that the Apostle Paul, before he was converted on the Damascus Road, was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a religious sect in Judaism that were very earnest in keeping the Torah, God's law. The Pharisees were this religious group that believed that in order for there to be a revival of, of, of Hebrew uh, flourishing and, and wellness, the Pharisees believed we, we need to get back to the basics. We need to get back to the Torah, the five books of Moses. Because the Pharisees were living in a time in which it was very difficult for the Jewish people, the Israelites. They were under Roman occupation. They had been for just over 60 years, ruled by the Romans. And then you had a group such as the Sadducees, who were theological liberals. Uh, you had other group of Jews that were collaborating with the Romans, tax collectors, for example. Uh, you also had others that were revolting against the Romans and often by force, um, and, and that was causing the Romans to uh, at times beat down upon the uh, Jewish people. You also had a group called the Essenes that uh, believed that the, the Messiah, the great deliverer, was going to come, and so they're waiting out in the wilderness, uh, living very um, isolated lives, and, and they had their own conception of what, what the future would bring and how they would usher it in. So you had all these different groups amongst Judaism, amongst the Hebrews, amongst the Israelites in this fairly small area of land. And the Pharisees believed that in order for us to see a revitalization of Israelite culture and way of life and religion, we need to go back to the law. Now, you say that they're theological conservatives in that sense. However, the problem with the Pharisees is that they became legalists in this sense that they thought, well, if we just add more laws to God's law, 
if we build certain fences around God's law, then there's going to be no way we, we break God's law. And if we actually remain outside the fences that we put up for ourselves, then, then actually we keep God's law. And understand that that insidiously got into their hearts and that they genuinely believed that they were law keepers and being law keepers, good Torah followers, they could in some way make themselves right with God. And so this is why when Jesus was being gracious and merciful, Kind to those who the Pharisees did not believe deserved any sort of kindness or mercy. They were angry at Jesus and they plotted to have Jesus put to death. And so the Apostle Paul is one of these Pharisees and he was very earnest, zealous for the law and being a Pharisee. If there was any Pharisee that would receive phenomenal Pharisee of the Year order was the Apostle Paul. And the apostle speaks about his own resume, his set of credentials. And it really was exceptional. And this is what he speaks about in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, faultless. If there was a checklist and you put a sticky star beside every checklist, I had a sticky star beside everything. I came from the right kind of family, from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm descended from the apple of God's eye, the treasured possession, Israelite. I'm a full son of Abraham. I got Abraham's blood surging through my veins. I can trace my family tree right back to Abraham. I was a Pharisee, this religious sect that was so ambitious to get back to the law. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, educated. He was tutored by Gamaliel, one of the uh, most prestigious Jewish rabbis. If there was any moral law to be kept, I kept it. I did everything right. But then I became converted on the Damascus Road. And I realized that all these accolades, all these credentials, all these sticky stars of my own righteousness was actually no righteousness at all. It was rubbish. The word here in the Greek, skubalon, it's actually dung, manure, manure. That worthless. Whatever thing that I had that I believe was a prophet, it was actually a loss compared to knowing the greatness of Jesus Christ, knowing him, for whose sake I've lost all things. My own righteousness was not real righteousness. It was rubbish, dung, maneuver. It's like I had all these trophies, and then they're on the 
shelf in my rec room. One day I went down there and I took Avery Trophy and I put it in a cardboard box and I brought it to the garbage bin and I threw all of that into the garbage bin. Gone. Now, at one point, I thought those trophies were something else, that I was, I was something else because of all these things I had earned. But it was just garbage. It was nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This was the experience of the Apostle Paul. That the Apostle Paul could not self-manufacture, do it himself, his own righteousness. It only made him a very angry man, a persecutor of the church. And when the Lord Jesus met him, changed him, he indeed became a new creation. A persecutor of the church to preacher for the church. Now, Martin Luther's story is actually quite similar to the Apostle Paul. They're fairly similar types of people in that they both had brilliant legal minds, geniuses when it came to legal matters. Now, the Apostle, I mean, the Martin Luther, before his own particular conversion, he was a monk, friar in the Roman Catholic Church. He had devoted himself to the work of the church to serve God in the monastery. He had been trained in law and had a high regard for the law. However, he had a certain guilt complex. Some folks say he was actually obsessive compulsive in this sense that he would have obsessive and compulsive guilt over each and every single sin that he had committed, sins that he had committed in what he did, and also sins he had committed in what he didn't do, so sins of commission and also sins of omission. And so this brilliant man became absolutely consumed with his own sense of of guilt because he was conscious of the fact and experientially afraid of the reality that no matter how hard he tried, he was not good enough for God. Because Martin Luther had a real proper sense of the righteousness and holiness and blamelessness and perfection of God and what God demanded in light of God's own character of righteousness, perfection, and blamelessness. So Martin Luther is just thinking, God is so holy and righteous. And Martin Luther is not holy and righteous. God is so perfect. And Martin Luther is not perfect. And so Luther tried everything he could do. He could think of in order to try to make himself right. To to meet the standard of God's justice with with perfection. So he became... The super monk in the monastery. The super monk. If some monks prayed for eight hours, he'd pray for 15 hours. Some monks would fast for one day. He'd fast for four days. He would sleep without a blanket in the freezing German winter. He would climb up on the stone stairs on his knees, praying prayers of penance between each 
stair that he would ascend, blood all over his legs. He at one point said later that he actually did permanent damage to his digestive system because of how he beat his body in the monastery by fastings and various other things. He would spend long periods of time confessing his sins to the the priest in the confessional booth, hours upon hours. On one occasion, he spent six hours in that booth confessing the sins of the previous day. And it's believed one priest who was presiding over the confessional booth said, Brother Martin, when you come back tomorrow, can you actually have some actual sins to confess? But for Luther, these were real. And they, well, they were real sins. And he said later, he said, I kept the rule so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. I was, I was killing myself, he said. And it affected his view of God. He said one point, he said, love God. No, I don't love God. Sometimes I hate him. Sometimes Christ seems to me nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand. I don't love God. He just seems like a judge. A mean, stern judge is going to pounce on me, little Martin Luther, when I do something wrong. What a terrible way to live. But during this time, as he struggled, he was studying the, gospel, uh, studying the book of Romans as he was teaching through the book of Romans as a religious instructor. And he, one day, was thinking deeply of verse 17. And he couldn't get past the first half of it. Because verse 17 says, for in it, this is referring to the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Because he was also looking at verse 18. Because what does verse 18 says? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's driven to to despair because it clearly says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the righteousness of God. And so he saw the righteousness of God only as that righteousness by which God punishes the sinner. Understand? This is why Martin Luther was so terrified. God demands righteousness because he is righteous. Martin Luther cannot manufacture this righteousness, so God is going to punish Martin Luther for not having enough of the righteousness. But then, it was the second part of verse 17 when he that caused the light bulb to go on in his mind, in his heart to be liberated. Because the second part is, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
what caused the light bulb to go on in Martin Luther's mind is this, that the righteousness that God demanded can become the sinner's righteousness. And it can come to him or her through the means, the conduit of faith, of believing in the Lord Jesus. So there is this righteousness, but the righteousness is outside of myself. As the reformers would say, an alien righteousness outside of myself. Now, if that righteousness that's outside of myself can come to me and become mine through some miracle, then, then I'm okay. Then, then the standard of God's justice of righteousness will balance out. But it's through faith, through faith alone. See, when I put my faith in Jesus, his perfect righteousness can become mine. And this is how the gospel works. The righteousness that God demands, he provides. And this alien righteousness, this righteousness outside of myself, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we, we read our Bibles and we, we marvel at the perfection of Jesus' own life. He came all the way from heaven to earth, born as a baby in the manger, fully God and fully man. He was born under the law, but never broke any of the law. So boys and girls, the Lord Jesus Christ never broke any of the commandments. And he fulfilled the summary of the law, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. This is what Jesus did. He, he loved the Father always. He submitted to the Father's will always. He loved his neighbor as himself. So think about Jesus as the incarnation of love, as, as love walking amongst us, as 1 Corinthians 13 in person. Jesus always did the most loving thing. If Jesus didn't do something, was loving to not do it. If Jesus didn't say something, it was loving not to say. Jesus always said the most loving thing. This is this one perfect life. And then Jesus goes to the cross because he is this lamb without blemish. He is this righteousness. And on the cross, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. He becomes on the cross the sin wearer and the sin bearer. And that is why God the Father punishes Jesus, not for his own sins, but the sins that he is taking on, the sins of all of his people throughout all of history. And during those dark hours on Good Friday, Jesus expiates the sin, meaning he pays the price for it. He propitiates the wrath of God, which means he absorbs the wrath of God. So all the punishment that should be upon you and I and all of God's people is heaped upon Jesus. And the punishment, the wrath of God, just wrath of God, is absorbed 
paid for sufficiently, ultimately, eternally atoned for. And Jesus rises again on the third day, demonstrating his victory over sin and death and the devil. See, this is how the gospel works. And when you put your faith in Jesus, then this is what happens. All of your sins are are imputed credited, put upon Jesus, and there on the cross, there they were paid for, definitively, ultimately, finally, sufficiently, eternally. And then this, Jesus' perfect righteousness is also imputed, credited to you, so that God the Father looks at you through the veil, the lens of Jesus' own perfection. This is double imputation. Our sins to Jesus, Jesus' perfect righteousness back to us. For Luther, the key moment was when he realized it's not only the righteousness that is, but it's the righteousness that God gives freely as a gift. That the sinner's That Jesus' righteousness can become the sinners through faith alone. And all I got to do, as it says in our catechism, accept this gift with a believing heart, just as if I had never sinned or been a sinner. Justified sinners. Still sinners. You and I still sin. Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. We don't know the extent of our depravity. But yet, we're more loved and more affirmed and more accepted than we can even dream. So this is why the doctrine of justification by faith is so powerful when one truly understands and believes it. Because for you and I, our hearts are still bent toward this self-justification. We get on the religious treadmill each and every day. And we can start to wonder, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe God really doesn't love me. Maybe today I don't feel like he loves me. Think of the Peanuts comic, he loves me, he loves me not, as Lucy pulls off the pedals. Sometimes we think that's how God views us. Today I don't feel that close to the Lord I kicked the dog. I said mean things to my sister. Cheated at work. I think God loves me less. I don't feel that close to him today. I felt pretty close to him yesterday. Yesterday I felt like I was a pretty good Christian. Brothers and sisters, God's love for us is not dependent ultimately on how we feel about his love for us. It's ultimately not about where we failed and where we flopped where we missed, but rather it's all about what Christ has done for us. The Lord can't love you anymore, and he can't love you any less in the sense that he already loves you as he loves his one and only son. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the glory and the wonder of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And so we're simply called to look outside of ourselves, to get off the religious 
treadmill and to find our security and our worth, our identity in the immensity and the profound infinity of God's love for his people because of what is done for us on the cross. That we're safe in the arms of Jesus. If we find ourselves in dark valleys, at difficult times, we might wonder, does God love me? How is he allowing me? Why do I have to go through this? Maybe he's punishing me for my sin. No. All your sins have already been paid for. They've been punished. God's wrath has already been propitiated. It's been absorbed. Now, he might be disciplining you, just like parents discipline their children, but he's doing it out of love. This keeps you humble. Cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. It's your sins that led Jesus to the cross. Because ultimately, because of God's justice, someone needs to pay. Either you're going to pay or Jesus will pay.